welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, today in Berkeley, California. And as always, I am joined by Bob Bazanko. And as always, I want to thank you for listening in, watching. And as always, we want to ask you to please share these and rate and review them and retweet them and uh, in any other way, let people know about uh, what we're doing here. We have on great guests who deserve uh, to be heard by the widest audience possible. We talk about a lot of things that you won't hear elsewhere. We talk about things six months prior to people writing about them in New York and becoming famous, even though we've been covering these things for months ahead of time. So we are a scrappy little podcast taking on big podcasts and taking on Brooklyn and taking on all those uh, famous celebrity lefty media pundits and so we need your help so please share and support us we are ahead of the curve we're media insurgents like that <laughs> uh and i also want to you know make our our pitch that if you do like our content and you have a few extra dollars please donate to the green and red podcast you can go to our patreon page at patreon.com backslash green red podcast and become a recurring donor or you can go to our website, greenandredpodcast.org, and hit that ever that ever enticing support button and make a one-time donation. And today we have a, a, a great guest, and we're going to uh, get into uh, a topic, honestly, that we actually like probably don't talk about enough, but we love to talk about, which is uh, foreign relations, foreign policy. And so today we're joined by Eskander Sadigi, who is an assistant professor in comparative political theory at Goldsmiths College, University of London. He was previously a British Academy postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oxford, where he obtained his doctorate. Uh, Eskander has published widely on modern Iranian and Shia Islamic political thought and is a, a series editor of Radical Histories of the Middle East. His monograph, Revolution and its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in in Iran was published by Cambridge Press in 2019. Welcome to Green and Red. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to, great to be here. And uh, just to get started, um, our audience is pretty well versed, but uh, if you wanted to give us just a little bit of a, a background, today we're going to be talking about U.S.-Iran relations and uh, politics around the region. But if you wanted to give us just like a quick background on some of the aggressiveness by U.S., U.K., uh, even going back as far as like the Mossadegh uh, coup in 1950, in the 1950s, uh, okay. that would be great. Okay. Um, well, I mean, uh, in the longer term, in sort of the, the broader sweep of obviously uh, modern Iranian history, um, I guess foreign imperial aggression is new. I mean, it really begins in the late 19th century. And particularly obviously in that case, it was sort of the British Empire and Imperial Russia. Um, and in 1907, I mean, uh, both Russia and Britain has divided the country into two different spheres of influence. Um, then, of course, there was sort of the Anglo, um, the establishment of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, uh, which then became the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, uh, today known as BP. Um, and, you know, really was crucial uh, 
geostrategically, geopolitically for the uh, for the uh, British Empire. I mean, Iran was a buffer with respect to British India, quote unquote. Um, and famously, Churchill basically uh, Iranian oil was absolutely essential, um, basically from shifting the uh, British Admiralty from coal to oil. And you know, and then there's sort of a long history of sort of British um, interference, um, as well as Russian Imperial Russian uh, interference in internal um, Iranian affairs. Um, this obviously generated a lot of resentment uh, over the course of the 20th century. And yeah, probably one of the, a real flashpoint is obviously the nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian oil company by um, Iranian nationalists. And obviously the person, an individual who spearheaded that was uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, who again is a really sort of interesting figure, you know, anti-colonial nationalist, but also a liberal, someone who uh, was educated and had a doctorate in law from Switzerland. Um, he's, of course, then overthrown in the 1953 coup d'etat, um, which obviously Britain was uh, instrumental as well as uh, the United States. So it was uh, the Eisenhower administration, administration um, and the Dulles brothers, um, as well as Churchill and Anthony Eden. They obviously then overthrew um, the Mossadegh government. And then Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who you know, known of the Shah, known as the Shah of Iran, then is obviously reinstated, and we have then really, you know, a number of decades of authoritarian rule, which is increasingly sort of deepened and consolidated. Um, Iran becomes a one-party state in 1975. And this is obviously where, at the same time that under um, uh, President Nixon, Iran is uh, part of the so-called twin pillar doctrine. You know, so Iran and Saudi Arabia are just crucial uh, pillars of basically maintaining U.S. interests, U.S. security interests in the context of the Cold War. Um, and the Shah obviously dutifully fulfills that role. Um, most famously, actually, the Iranian army sort of participated in the repression of the Dafar revolution in Oman. Um, and then, yeah, and obviously then there's a, um, a popular revolution in 1978, uh, 1979. Um, and yeah, the, the most important US ally um, in the region is is overthrown and replaced with uh, what we t the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, and then from that on, I mean, it's obviously a very long, complicated uh, story. There's the Iran-Iraq war, there's the, obviously the hostage crisis, which is particularly important for trying to understand US-Iranian um, um, relations. And that's sort of the longer sort of historical context, right? I mean, I think it's always crucial to sort of bear this in mind when, um, studying this sort of standoff between um, the US and Iran. The more immediate context, I guess, which is gonna be the subject of our session today is obviously the, the standoff on Iran's um, nuclear program. And this really begins quite early from the early 2000s. It really, really does begin to, um, to take off. Um, and maybe we can discuss that in more detail, but I mean, you know, I, that's a, that, that itself is a long, complicated story. Is there any sort of is there anything specific you wanted me to kind of address in, in in that sort of the more recent sort of history specific of the nuclear deal? Do you want to kind of um, is there sort of a specific question that you had in mind, maybe? Well, yeah, but I, I think for one thing, even people on the left don't realize the extent of the U.S. relationship with Iran. Like in the '70s, between 1973 and 1978, the United States sold 19 billion dollars in weapons to the Shah. Which yeah. I believe at the time was Iran became the biggest recipient. The Shah, I don't know if you've ever seen him, did the ads for nuclear power uh, in the United States. 
Um, I haven't seen that. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Okay, and then okay. And I mean, then, another thing know, I actually forgot to mention. So one thing I forgot to mention yeah. was like obviously following the 1953 coup. I mean, one of the reasons why the US was so infamous was because. Um, the CIA, obviously, and some obviously speculate um, Mossad too, but played a very instrumental role in setting up the SAVAK, the basically the famous sort of uh, intelligence security apparatus, which was really um, established to to find, root out, and execute um, communists, and right. pretty much anybody who, who opposed the um, the the um, the Shah, pretty much. And obviously, this really did become a, a symbol and representative of um, U.S. Sort of power and, and sort of influence and sort of neo-colonialism um, in Iraq. And I mean, this even comes through in some of Ayatollah Khomeini's speeches in the early 60s. I mean, so he famously has this really famous speech which got him exiled, where he um, denounces um, the Shah's regime in the sort of the most sort of in the strongest of terms, and then he compares basically a law that was being um, proposed to the Iranian parliament at the time, which was really set to give uh, US personnel um, immunity legal immunity in Iran. Um, and this really actually became the speech which made Khomeini brought into the public attention, where he basically says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but he says, you know, if the Shah runs over an American dog, he'll basically be jailed um, and he'll be sort of, uh, will be in sort of hot water. Whereas if, uh, whereas if an American runs over the Shah, there's no consequences whatsoever. And he basically says, you know, this is basically just a humi national humiliation, this is kind of, uh, you know, we've, been, we've basically been turned into a colony and so on and so forth. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's um, yeah, huge to kind of understanding the context, obviously, in which the Islamic Republic actually emerges. It's one of its, uh, its ideological orientation emerges and so on. Yeah. Also, I think uh, as we go through this, um, <clears throat> bringing Israel into it, because the American media never does. So you read these stories about Iran. And they're essentially, you know, focus on Iran and the United States. And they'll talk about proxy, you know, actions in, in Syria. Yeah, we should talk and, about uh, that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Iraq. But but Israel has, like, disappeared. It's it's absent yeah. from all this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think to go up to the early 2000s, though, you know, so you have this period where the United States is actually sponsoring Iraq and the Iran-Iraq war. At the same time, it's selling weapons to Iran on the side to help the Contras. And then you have this kind of animus, you know, that continues, you know, and and in American kind of political culture, Iran is is really bad. They're, you know, the Ayatollah is really bad. And you have this kind of Islamophobia rising. And then you yeah. get to the early 2000s. And then all of a sudden the media starts talking about the the Iranian nuclear program. My own conspiracy theory on it is that uh, there was a brief period there where Iran was part of a, a discussions about creating a new bourse for oil using euros instead of dollars but i don't want to get into that but uh it seemed to kind of occur but i remember first reading these kind of hysterics about the iranian nuclear program probably around 2003 2000 around the same time the u.s was ramping up to invade iraq it was around so the access kinda, of evil speech yeah the access yeah of, evil of course speech yeah, and all that. yeah 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 right i mean this is actually one. i mean that's a really interesting you raised that the access of evil speech because um and, and, and it resonates very much with what we saw happen with the nuclear program insofar as when the Axis of Evil speech actually was given by uh, George W. Bush, we had a reformist administration in Iran, uh, the administration of Mohammad Khatami. And following obviously 9-11, Iran had actually supported to some extent, um, once the US obviously invaded Afghanistan, I mean, it was actually Iranian allies, Northern Alliance, which, did in part obviously support the the defeat of the and the sort of pushing back of the Taliban. I mean, so in a sense, Iran did work together with the U.S. 
on, a, on certain issues in Afghanistan. And then you basically had the Axis of Evil speech. So this was another instance, as far as, for instance, people on the right in Iran uh, were concerned, of Iran showing goodwill to the US. I mean, obviously, you can, you can evaluate Iran's own position and policy as far as Afghanistan was going, you can really problematize that. But, um, but I mean, it was a case of Iran sort of working with the US or showing goodwill in some sense, and then basically being... Um, denounced as, yeah, the epitome um, of evil. Um, and again, this is why we had a reformist administration. So again, this is this really sort of um, demonstrated to a significant part of the political elite in Iran. It's like, okay, you basically deal with the US and the US pretty much reneges or denounces you and actually tries to fundamentally overthrow or implode your, your the state um, in the Iranian government, tries to overthrow it in some capacity. And we see a similar sort of dynamic at work in the nuclear um, accord, which we can talk about um, as well. So from that period on, then you have this this kind of uh, continued propaganda and, uh, and and these public this public posturing. Uh, Barack Obama became president, and then you know kind of uh, began working on this nuclear deal, continuing yeah. to insist that Iran. And now the key piece of this is that you know Iran is going to become a nuclear threat in the region, right? Yeah. Um, and now there's really no solid evidence. I mean, Iran is clearly working on a nuclear program, but it doesn't seem to have military applications. At least that's what, you know, groups yeah, like that. Yeah, and it's a signature of the NPT as well. Right. I mean, yeah, this has been ongoing, I think, since the Bush administration, uh, you know, and there was sort of negotiation with the EU as well. Uh, and Hassan Rouhani was actually the head of the um, Supreme National Security Council at the time, and it was very, very um, involved in this front. Um, and the spokesman for that was a, was a gentleman by the name of um, Jose Musavian, who's now based at Princeton, I believe, um, and regularly sort of writes on these things. But I mean, yeah, this sort of um, idea that there is a, um, yeah, a malicious um, Iranian nuclear program, despite the fact that Iran is a signatory of the NPT, something which obviously, you know, the Israeli state is, is not, um, right. um, and therefore is obviously committed to all sorts of um, inspections and protocols um, around um, its sort of nuclear energy um, program and yeah, and a lot of the speculation around the supposedly malign intent was actually based on information, which you know there's been a lot of speculation about it. I mean, basically, it came from um, representatives of the Mujahideen Khalq, which is a which is basically an opposition um, organization which was formerly based in Iraq um, when Saddam Hussein was president. Actually, participated on the side of Iraq against Iran in the course of the Iran-Iraq War. And then following the invasion of Iraq um, by the United States, um, basically the Mujahideen reached uh, an agreement with the US government um, that it would be rehoused. And I guess the US government has reached an accord with the Albanian government. And now it's actually got, essentially it has a base in Albania and it's, <laughs> and it's, and it's still there. Um, and it's believed that, you know, uh, it undertakes sort of a lot of cyber attacks and, um, uh, all sorts of things sort of you know uh, poisoning hashtags on twitter and all sorts of kind of um um psychological kind of warfare operations are coming from albania um but in any event i mean it's a really bizarre thing but anyway the the the, the, the original intel or this sort of announcement that iran is uh, for instance um is enriching uranium and it's doing it and, and it, there's all these untoward um signs that iran is moving towards um in a sense to weaponize this program came from um, the Mujahideen, and then it's also believed that even a lot of this info actually originally may have come from the Mossad and then was given to the Mujahideen, and there's clearly relationships which, you know, it's difficult to discern in terms of open source um, research, like, you know, the exact relationship between you know, the Mossad, Mujahideen, and also Saudi um, intelligence, because there's clearly um, a relationship 
there. And, and ever since, I mean, then basically, as you sort of said, there's been really a lot of pressure on Iran to just take these sort of extra steps of so signing up for the additional protocol of the NPT um, and all these sorts of things. And obviously, the constant sort of, um, it's constantly just implied that Iran is a short step away from weaponization. And yeah, this has obviously justified a very kind of, you could say, aggressive um, policy. And, you know, and this obviously I came to a head really, I think, under the presidency of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, um, who was seen as, you know, a threat to, uh, to world peace um, and was often really um, demonized. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not a particular, I'm not a fan of him um, by any, by any measure, but um, you know, this is often, you know, highly kind of exaggerated and, you know, it was like an ongoing um, kind of uh, propaganda campaign, um, more often than not. Um, obviously, then um, Ahmadinejad has a controversial election in 2009. He then serves out his term. Um, then Hassan Rouhani, the same guy, the same gentleman who was basically at the head of the Supreme National Security Council, who, yeah, was a very seasoned, a seasoned diplomat, um, closer to... Um, Akbar Hashmi Rasanjani, who was um, the second president of the Islamic Republic, um, a leading figure in the revolution, very close to Ayatollah Khomeini, but was seen as being a very pragmatic figure, both in terms of real politique, insofar as he was someone who brought about a rapprochement with the Gulf states following the Iran-Iraq war, uh, but also economically, he was seen as, yeah, liberalization, free markets, bringing in foreign capital and these sorts of things. And he's often kind of seen as a father of um, um, Iranian neoliberalism. Um, um, yeah, whether rightly or wrongly. Um, and Rouhani really kind of comes from that, uh, comes from that background, but he has the added sort of, um, he also comes from a security background so far as he was very, he was very much involved with the Ministry of Defence and things like that. But anyway, he was someone who believed strongly in diplomacy and he was elected on this platform of engaging in sustained diplomacy, bringing this impasse with the United States to a head. Like, you know, so, and this is obviously also reflected in the appointment of um, Javad Zarif as the foreign minister, who's again, somebody who, very seasoned diplomat, uh, has a PhD from Denver, I believe, you know, um, yeah, sophisticated kind of um, uh, diplomat and, and, and political figure. And obviously then this is, you know, concluded with the Obama administration, I should say, after a, a very intense period of kind of economic warfare, really, um, from the Obama administration, really kind of turning the screws. And then this accord is obviously then reached in, in 2015. Um, yeah, and then it's, you know, and it just, you, anyone who saw what happened in Iran when it was going to, you know, there was jubilation, there was um, just spontaneous, um, sort, of, sort of people pouring into the streets spontaneously, you know, they really thought this was going to lead to some kind of um, sustained, or yeah, a serious and substantial kind of transformation in their economic fortunes, the standard of living, um, and whatnot. Um, and yeah, obviously that didn't, that didn't materialize. So you have this disagreement in, in 2015, which includes, what is it, uh, the UK, France, Germany, Germany, Russia, China, and Russia, China, and China, yeah, the P5 the plus United one, States. right, and, and it imposes all these, these tests on, on Iran's nuclear program, and with a very open inspection system, um, and the one country which is uh, uh, probably the most concerned about this is, is Israel, uh, doesn't Netanyahu call uh, and Saudi um, and Saudi and Saudi, Saudi and Saudi? Yeah, yeah. Netanyahu calls Iran an existential threat, and 
they kind of take this statement from Ahmadinejad and, you know, out of context and claim he wants to, you know, uh, yeah. blow up Israel and all that. So it's, yeah. it's within this yeah. context. And, and Obama considers this kind of the gold standard. This is kind of the, you know, he's about to leave office. And so this is really so just, you know, uh, it, it's an agreement to, to deter Iran, to prevent Iran from from um, developing nuclear weapons. And yeah, it comes yeah, under heavy attack from from the yeah. right wing in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like um, Faisal al-Saud, basically the former foreign minister of, I believe that he actually tried to meet with, uh, you know, American high ranking sort of officials to try and dissuade them. Obviously, Netanyahu, who was very kind of proactive in demonizing. Too. I mean, and, and afterwards, I mean, it was basically just a constant um, yeah. barrage of just trying to delegitimize it. And also, yeah, and the point just let me was, cut it. Israel itself has what 300 nuclear weapons of yeah hundreds own? of nuclear warheads yeah, yeah exactly it's the, only, the only country in that in that region with with uh yeah uh, military nuclear military capability so but i think it's, it's just always like, just forgotten that iran is the signature of the npt non-proliferation treaty yeah. and therefore it's actually and by being a signature you have a right to peaceful nuclear energy yeah. i mean that's like literally the point i mean that was one of the incentives right and that's uh and i think iran does take um has you know has taken that um very seriously, um, generally, um, um, and but the point was, I mean, what essentially what happened is that I mean, the reason why Iran always sort of pushed on enrichment is because I mean, the, the, the United States stance was, and this actually comes um, through in like lots of sort of first-hand accounts by, for instance, like Mohammed Al Baradei, you know, who's the former head of the, um, the IEA. Um, he himself says, he says, you know, the United States was not even prepared to um, allow Iran the capacity to enrich, which it, it has a right to. I mean, so um, and this is obviously because the US then alleges that, you know, this basically shortens Iran's breakout time. And if Iran does decide to actually to ultimately enrich uranium, um, highly enrich, basically create a stockpile of highly enrich, it can. And then um, this obviously then allows for. Uh, weaponization of the program but I mean there's so many things that would have to happen for that to even occur I mean Iran would have to pull out of the NPT you would have to be there's also cameras basically monitoring Iran's nuclear and this is not just since the GCP, JCPOA this has been for, the, for a long long extended period of time so I think that's really important to kind of bear in mind but yeah it, it, in essence it was basically to to the end of yeah ensuring that the uh, yeah, mechanisms to guard against non-proliferation were really robust and in, in an Iranian case, and because obviously Iran is not trusted because Iran is seen as quite dubious and not trustworthy and all these sorts of things. Um, yeah, and Iran obviously signed that, signed up to it, and it abided by it and didn't actually, um, and, and, you know, and, and was bound to it to the letter. I mean, they were committed to it um, very, very strongly, um, didn't deviate from it uh, in the two years that the US what did sort of continue to, to remain in the deal, even though, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I mean, the U.S. really didn't even um, in that two years under Obama, you know, the remaining time under Obama, didn't really fulfill its obligations um, uh, on the economic side. Because the sanctions regime uh, was so severe under Obama, many actually financial institutions and banks and whatnot were, were refusing to actually um, deal with Iran or to deal with companies that wanted to deal with Iran. So this actually hampered even in the end of the in the latter stage of the Obama administration and sort of the last stretch. Um, sort of the promised sort of economic kind of dividends that would come from the deal. So that was also um, a factor. And then obviously um, Donald Trump, I mean, from the campaign was just absolutely demonizing this deal, was going for it every turn by calling it the worst deal 
in history, um, he had a bunch of kind of uh, neocons of people like, I guess, Giuliani and others who were absolutely, again, very much opposed to the deal, very much aligned with Israeli and Saudi interests on this. And then really from coming in, because also the, the nature of the deal was just, it was badly constructed on the US side as well. So for instance, sanctions, um, sanctions relief and lots of other things were dependent on executive orders. And it was basically executive on the, the president to keep renewing these, I think every 90 days or so. And then there were, and even in the first year of Trump, of the Trump administration, there was this sort of game where he would kind of, um, you know, he, he, he played this game whereby he would sort of say, oh, am I going to renew it? Am I not going to renew it? And this would actually really kind of screw with the Iranian economy. Um, and it would have sort of a huge sort of um, implications for the currency, actually. And there were, you would see like these sort of huge fluctuations in Iranian currency and devaluations and whatnot as a result of this. And eventually um, he exits it, I think it's in May 2018. And then this program of maximum pressure, as they call it. I mean, it's just a good old fashioned economic warfare, basically, um, begins. And I mean, the object, I mean, the aim was very explicit. I mean, and they were directly advised by um, think tanks like the FDD, the um, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, you know, which has, you know, um, it, its donor base is completely aligned with pretty much um, Likud and, you know, right wing of even the Israeli establishment. But um, really pushing sort of absolute all-encompassing economic warfare with the hope that, you know, uh, this would generate huge, huge levels of economic discontent and then riots and whatnot, and potentially this caused the regime to implode. Or if not, they knew it would just generate the conditions for, for riots and uprisings, which then would re be repressed and then could basically justify further sanctions. Uh, on the Iranian state, and obviously by definition, really the whole of whole of Iran. I mean, and this is like actually really reflected in like the economic figures. So, like in the first two years of the maximum pressure campaign, Iran's economy shrinks by twelve percent. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, in the UK, I was I mean I was reflecting on this a while back, but I mean, the UK saw its um, in, in, after COVID and following COVID. And the crisis that's ensued, the economy has uh, contracted by 9.9%. Uh, whereas in Iran, I mean, those first few years, there was a contraction of 12%. And then, I mean, um, all Iranian oil revenue was also obviously targeted as part of this. That was decreased by 80% in those first two years. There was like a, uh, an increase in absolute poverty between 2018 and um, 2020 of 11%. And the living standard dropped by 13% nationally. I mean... It's really shocking. And this is obviously before, like when the, when the nuclear deal was actually uh, reached in 2015, we saw actually Iran have an economic growth rate of 17%. And this is because basically they were bouncing, a lot of it, that growth is attributed because the fact that Iran had, was already under sanctions and lifting of some of these sanctions created a big bounce back. But nevertheless, it was a real substantial um, um, increase. And according to one really actually good article by uh, Hadi uh, uh, Kahalzadeh, which was actually in foreign affairs of all places, but it was a, it's a very solid article. Um, it says, you know, in the aftermath of that, um, of the of the nuclear accord, we saw sort of 3.5 million jobs generated in Iran. And again, most of these benefited, you know, um, middle class, lower middle class individuals. So, I mean, one of the things that's really just interesting about sort of an economic war of this kind of this nature is that how it's, it is a form of class warfare as well, because it actually really changes and shapes the, the social class composition of, of a society. And again, I mean, this, you know, Iran's obviously not the only case. I mean, just one has to look even more recent history. I mean, the case of Iraq before the invasion um, um, and so on. So yeah, it's had a really very uh, detrimental um, effect on Iran. And we've seen that, I mean, in terms of, 
obviously there's a lot of you know there's corruption inside Iran there's lots of mismanagement there's lots of all these there's lots of um, issues internally sort of structural problems within Iran's own economy but you know just the scope and comprehensiveness of this sort of economic war in Iran um, you know, very few economies have to deal with those kind of stress tests. You know, I mean, you know, I think most economies, you know, all their weaknesses would be massively exposed when you've got like a, you know, an empire, uh, the world's sort of most powerful you know, superpower, um, launching a kind of a concerted uh, war of this nature. And so we've seen protests in Iran, like particularly one well-known, one particularly important one was the November 29 one, 2019 one, sorry, uh, November 2019, when the Rouhani administration lifted fuel subsidies and then there was like a huge, then there was a significant uh, backlash and like hundreds of protesters were actually killed as a result of that. But, um, and, you know, and, and, and this sort of, you know, these sort of um, flashpoints and uh, periodic kind of protests are still going on just because, one, because obviously there is discontent with Iran, but also, I mean, just the economic situation has just massively, you know, deteriorated as a result of this. You know, and, and something else that, again, the, the US media didn't focus on, the US is a lone wolf in this because, it was uh, publicly criticized by, by, you know, the Chinese, not so surprisingly, but by the British, by the French. And so you have these kind of really public phrases where people like Mike Pence are attacking, you know, uh, uh, I think it was Hull was the British foreign minister at the time. I can't remember uh, Germany. Um, and even in the United States, the, the basically the foreign policy establishment was critical of Trump. Like you said, articles in foreign affairs, I believe, like at the time, Coates, who was the uh, national intelligence uh, director, publicly said, no, Iran has not abrogated, uh, the, you know, hasn't violated the treaty. So this is essentially a lone wolf operation. And, you know, I, at the time of uh, Trump abrogating, I did some media and everybody, the first question was always, is this because Trump hates Obama so much? I was like, yeah, that's everything. But I was like, it's Israel. And they didn't want to go with that. You know, it's like Israel is, you know, the big part of this story. I don't think anybody wanted to, to touch that part of it. But yeah, I think, I think that's it's still, the, I mean, yeah. would, I mean, isn't that a major factor in Trump's? I, th I think Trump like did? Israel and Saudi Arabia and Saudi yeah. and, and, and the UAE. I mean, yeah. I think I think um, all of I mean, Israel obviously needs has needed Iran quite for quite some time as it's sort of it's, it's boogeyman. And it's often a way in yeah. which the right uh, is able to coalesce uh, around. So obviously, obviously that and the occupation, uh, like not ceding anything in terms of the occupation and the ongoing annexation of um the West Bank, but um, and and obviously, yeah, now Jerusalem is Jerusalem. But um, yeah, Iran has been um, Hage Ram, who's a scholar actually based in Israel. He had a, he wrote a book called Iranophobia, and he actually looks at how the figure of Iran as the sort of ultimate boogeyman is. It basically it's it's really about internal um, Israeli politics often. Um, yeah, and obviously, you know, the the committed partisans of Israel within the United States obviously do not want to see uh, any accord. Uh, with with Iran whatsoever, and have sort of made it their their life's mission to kind of ensure that um, Iran is isolated uh, from, yeah, from the international the global international order. It's not able to, um, and and its economy is obviously uh, again isolated um, from the sort of international economic world. And obviously, the US obviously dominates a lot of these um, international bodies like the IMF and the World Bank and, and so on, and it wields that power accordingly. But yeah, I think Israel, but also Saudi Arabia, I mean, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, I mean, they've both become accustomed since the revolution for Iran to be this almost like quote unquote pariah state, right? Um, and so they've been really committed. I mean, and this was obviously exacerbated even more so following the election of Mohammed bin Salman, or, I mean, sorry, the, the arrival of Mohammed bin Salman as basically the de, de facto leader um, of Saudi Arabia. Obviously his father is the, is the king, King Salman, but 
um, yeah, MBS has you know, been really um, aggressive in his sort of anti-Iran um, rhetoric um, and been trying to obviously um, yeah, push back against what he claims is Iranian influence in the region and so on. So I think, yeah, both of these, both, I mean, the, 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 the Saudi, Arabia, Saudi Arabia and the Israel and Israel are definitely opposed to any kind of normalization just because they've just, I mean, they're used to, um, they're used to having Iran sort of de- being the ultimate and this is prior in the region demonized and not actually being treated as if it's um, a quote unquote normal country as um, Secretary Pompeo used to always, you know, say like constantly. Um, and the thing that was so absurd about that is that, you know, Iran was actually abiding by its international obligations. And it was the United States, like you said, that was acting as this, um, yeah, lone wolf. Um, well, they, they assassinated the, the, the lead, you know, the uh, yeah, yeah. military official, you know. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. So then obviously they assassinated yeah. uh, uh, Soleimani, Soleimani yeah. in January 2020. Yeah. And then, um, then, yeah, it seems that also then followed that up in November with the assassination of Mohsen uh, Fakhrizadeh, who was a well-known... Um, nuclear um, scientists but yeah the actual the assassination of um, Qasem Soleimani and uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandas who was um, the head of the Kitab al-Hezbollah which was an important um, sort of militia group uh, in Iraq and it was actually part of the popular mobilization uh, units I mean at one point I think he was even the deputy of that which was you know it's um, it's been incorporated recognized under the Iraqi constitution as being part of the Iraqi kind of uh, military forces um, and and then there's a lot of speculation, the extent to which you know Iraq wasn't even told about this, and the United States basically assassinated uh, uh, an Iranian uh, general um, on a third on, on a basically a third party soil uh, without even communicating or with uh, supposedly their ally, which is the American government. So, I mean, yeah, in this instance, I mean, Iran is constantly you know painted as you know the prior nation and basically any challenge to U.S. exceptionalism, the U.S. basically um, ability to project its power in the Middle East is seen as um, you know, Iranian adventurism, Iranian imperialism, Iranian whatever. So, um, yeah, this dynamic is continuing as well. I mean, I don't think it's, um, unfortunately, the, I don't think there's going to be any substantive change for, for some time. But, and the assassination of Soleimani was like, I mean, he was like a very significant figure in, you know, Iranian politics as well as like politics of the region. At least in the U.S. media, it was portrayed as he's the sort of unofficial, you know, secretary of state second most important person in Iranian government. And so the assassination of him is like a, a fairly significant thing, correct? Yeah, I mean, um, he was the head formerly of the Iranian Quds Force, which is usually seen as sort of, yeah, um, crucial to um, overseeing Iranian military strategy um, abroad, basically. Um, and yeah, he was very crucial um, in, for instance, bogging down the US in Iraq following the invasion of Iraq. But he was, you know, he was also an architect of Iranian policy in Afghanistan, Syria, obviously, um, and various other um, arenas. And obviously, I mean, yeah, this is clearly, um, you know, a problematic thing, especially I mean, and many, obviously, uh, social forces, uh, progressive ones are within places like Iraq and Syria, um, obviously do not want this kind of Iranian um, influence. And they're absolutely within, you know, completely within their rights to, to criticize that because, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have the people of those countries, their interests at heart. The rationale on the Iranian side is that, you know, Iran has been basically under an arms embargo since the revolution. It doesn't have like a, a conventional kind of air force. It's very limited in terms of its conventional military, um, its sort of military for its conventional military forces. 
So basically what Qasem Soleimani, and it was, it was a lead figure, but he's not the only one. And this is a kind of the typical, often sort of colonial mindset that, you know, you take, you basically sever the head and basically the whole thing's going to fall apart. It's not. There's a series of, you know, infrastructures, there's institutional memory, which has been developed over decades. I mean, and we shouldn't forget that Iran lived through an eight-year protracted, really bloody, basically almost like World War One-style trench warfare um, in which, you know, the United States was arming uh, Saddam Hussein. They were even basically giving a satellite uh, intelligence and targets, um, which then Saddam used to basically uh, use chemical weapons against Iranian forces. Um, so chemical weapons were used against um, Iran by something with the complete, um, with, no, with the knowledge of, of the United States, um, and they actually supported and facilitated um, attacks of this nature. So, I mean, Iran has developed a security doctrine out of that experience um, um, for very often, you know, you could say rational, um, for, for, for very rational reasons. Um, so because they don't have a strong conventional military, so for instance, their military budget is around, I think, between, pre last time I checked, it was about 14 or 15 billion ranging perhaps you can say to 20, whereas, you know, the US is basically um, exporting huge amounts of uh, weapons to places like the Emirates, to Saudi Arabia. Um, I mean, the Emirates uh, military budget is higher than Iran's. It's a tiny, tiny, um, you know, um, sort of set of city states, basically. Um, and Saudi Arabia is, I think, over 80 billion, probably higher now. Um, um, so, you know, it's a quadruple that of the Iranian uh, military budget. So, so basically in response to the Iran-Iraq war, to the an arms embargo, um, isolation, and whatnot, and the and, and the fact that you know Iran has been demonized since the revolution. Yeah, they developed this security doctrine where they basically work with local actors, local forces, which are often disgruntled with the situation in those countries. Whether it's like places like Iraq, where obviously the United States still has military forces, same in Afghanistan. Uh, or where places like in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia, with the support of the United States and Great Britain, you know, has basically uh, enacted a blockade and uh, uh, a systematic bombing campaign of that country, and you know, many war crimes, bombing kind of crucial, vital infrastructure for that country. So I mean, the, Iran is basically just using its um, its abilities, which has developed out of the course of the Iran-Iraq War, to work and collaborate with local actors often who are disgruntled, and to basically bog down the United States and its allies, because if they're preoccupied there, then, you know, they're, they're less likely to turn their attention uh, to Iran. But obviously that's not, that clearly hasn't been especially um, successful. But we also shouldn't remember, like obviously in the wake of um, September 11th and then the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, like many neoconservatives and many people in the Bush administration were pretty much like, yeah, next stop is going to be um, Damascus and then Tehran. So there was this idea that, you know, uh, the U.S. can just unilaterally invade countries, overthrow their governments, and um, and install you know whichever whatever regime or set of indiv dubious individuals they 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 deem fit. So yeah, Iran's basically isn't going to obviously going to trust in um, the international community to do the right thing. It's uh, obviously has developed this um, the security doctrine uh, in clear response to that. And again, whether you agree or don't, whether you can, there's lots of grounds to be critical, but. Um, it's done it for rational reasons. If you believe that, yeah, you want to basically ensure you've got secure borders and you basically have a stable country. I mean, that's what they've done. So, Scott, do you want to uh, tell all of our listeners and viewers how to learn more about the Green and Red podcast and how to support us? Thanks for listening to the Green and Red podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate 
link. And then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash green red podcast and join the, the large and growing donor base that we have. Thanks. Thank you. Share everything too. And uh, tell your friends. Yeah. Now we've moved, especially now with Biden and um, the, the nuclear program is still kind of the centerpiece of, of this kind of dispute, but you're hearing a lot more now, but of course about human rights, right? Humanitarian intervention, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But also about um, Iranian support of proxies in, in Iraq and Syria it seems to become in the last six months or so uh, becoming a lot more, uh, you know, kind of uh, talked about in, in the media. And I think you just kind of spoke to that a bit, but if you want to just kind of elaborate on that a little, why, yeah, uh, Iran is engaged with, uh, you know, with these forces. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I think like Iran backed militia has just become now, um, you just cite it as a pretext for a, sort of any kind of action yeah, yeah, yeah. to take now. It's, well, it's, it's like Cuba and Latin America, right? Uh, the, the Cuban sponsored Sandinistas, the Cuban sponsored FMLN, the Cuban yeah. guerrillas in Guatemala, you know, uh, you just throw that in front of it and boom, all of a sudden everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it, it's just, I mean, it, there's so many problems with it. I mean, at first, there, there is clearly like a spectrum of groups, right? So there are those who like have a genuine organic kind of political and social base, which then, because they're under threat by maybe the central government, which is you know, allied with the United States or whatever, will occasionally work with Iran, like get some training or logistical support or whatever. I mean, that will happen. And then you have groups who, yeah, were very, you could say, are, are much more tightly controlled by Iran. So there's like, but this is a huge spectrum. I mean, um, and often, I mean, Iran is just finding, actually going to, if Iran has a role in the region and, and is basically playing this kind of role in supporting certain groups, it's because these groups exist and they have, you know, real grievances and uh, Iran's sort of just filling a, a vacuum there. So, but just to give like a concrete example, for instance, so in Yemen, uh, we have the Ansar Allah, which is like known as the Houthis. Houthis are cre aren't created by Iran. They're, they're not 12 uh, Shia Muslims either. They're, they're Zaydis who, again, it's a very complex history, but you know, there's no reason why they should actually have some kind of organic link with the Iranian state. There's, there isn't. I mean, there really isn't. This is just um, nonsense. But obviously because you know, over years and years, so um, under the Saleh government, who was then overthrown in the 2011 in the course of the Arab Spring, who was obviously a very close ally of the United States and was working hand in glove with the CIA um, over the question of, for instance, Al-Qaeda in Yemen and, and a number of other things, basically um, Saleh um, pretty much allowed um, Saudi Arabia to, inc to make incursions increasing incursions into the north of the country, which was kind of the traditional base of the Ansar Allah. Um, and they basically see this as very much an encroachment, as a, as a threat, um, which it was. Um, and then they begin to resist that. And actually, the United States was actually very allied in supporting Saleh in repressing a number of these rebellions by the so-called, by the Houthis. Um, Iran doesn't, is, not, is, not, is not here. And actually, what is actually, is not, is, is not, doesn't, there's no presence here. What's actually interesting, when, I mean, there was an excellent like, article which came out in America quite a while ago now, but it was sort of looking at a lot of the communications between Saleh and the, and, and, and the Americans. And Saleh himself was kind of using the Iranian boogeyman, using this sort of boogeyman of Shiism often. Um, and he himself was a Zaidi, by the way. Um, um, uh, using this as a, as, a, as, a, as a pretext to sort of get more money from the Americans. And then he probably did whatever he wanted and, uh, with that, with those, with those resources. So this kind of Iranian boogeyman in Yemen has a long stand. This goes back to the 1990s. Um, as we see following the like, Arab Spring, since the overthrow of um, Saleh, who then goes to Saudi Arabia, ultimately, then we see the, the Houthis sort of emerge as a real um, force in, in Yemeni politics, particularly in the north. 
But what's interesting here is like Iranian control is limited. It's extremely um, constrained. So for instance, um, a number of years ago, when the Houthis finally take Sana'a, the city, I mean, you know, the city of Sana in, in in Yemen. Iran is like it was alleged to have said, "Please don't do this. Don't do it. It's going to be provocative. You should. We advise you not to." And they completely ignored it and just went ahead. So, I mean, this idea that Iran is this sort of, you know, um, octopus kind of thing with its tentacles and everything has absolute control um, of all these different groups. It's no. It's like where you have basically the, the central state, for instance, in Iraq as well. The central state is completely uh, ineffective in many parts of the country, who has been since the invasion uh, in 2003. Um, is a doesn't really have a monopoly on violence. Um, isn't delivering social services. Um, and there's like proliferation of weapons in the country. So you can say like, yeah, like in Iraq, like in Yemen, places. of course, you're going to have groups representing different social classes, different intersections of interests um, that, you know, are going to be disgruntled and they're going to probably have weapons in a country like Iraq or like Yemen. I mean, this is sort of just the nature of the situation, which the United States has a huge hand in creating. I mean, these all these sort of security vacuums where all of a sudden these armed groups emerge is because basically of a security vacuum which was created by the United States destroying the Iraqi state. I mean, um, and then obviously that we know sort of the story of the dissolution of the Iraqi army, um, debathification, and then how this had this huge knock-on effect. Obviously, which on the other side, Islamic State is another is an example, an outcome of this. It was one of the repercussions um, of this kind of policy. So, I mean, the question of Iranian, you know, back to militias. Yes, sure, Iran does have influence, and it's related to the security doctrine, which I said. So, they'll support actors with which they can work with. Um, you know, uh, to basically to further their own interests and obviously, um, you know, antagonize the US and their allies, for sure. I mean, and Iran had previously, for instance, because obviously it was dedicated to the Palestinian cause, it had supported groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad and other groups like this. Um, Iran does have that history. But to just say that these groups are controlled by Iran, that they're just, they're just basically advancing Iranian interests, it's just simply not true. I mean, these groups, a lot of them have their own interests, have their own constituencies, um, have their own sort of set of preoccupations and they're going to pursue those. And sometimes like Iran might be able to influence them, but a lot of the time it might not be able to. But at the moment, I mean, obviously the US administration is just using this cynically because it just allows it to just bomb and drone and do whatever it pretty much wants. Because, you know, the US says, okay, these are, this is Iranian influence, has the Iranian signature, and therefore, you know, we're legitimate, we can legitimately pretty much have a blank check to take whatever course, whatever action we see fit. Those U.S. power holders would be happy to say that U.S. the social movements in the U.S. domestically are influenced or backed by the Iranians if they could. <laughs> I did see actually something on Facebook. Uh, Iranian, Iranian sort of cyber cyber army like influencing U.S. voters on Facebook. Oh, that's that's been around for for a while now. Now, um, so Joe Biden's president and and Biden was Obama's vice president, so he claims to have a stake, kind of almost a personal stake. In this, uh, in the uh, JCPOA, and uh, one of Biden's, one of the uh, unnamed uh, State Department spokesmen, has said, "We're we've made it clear that we're not even talking about renegotiating the deal. Essentially, we don't have to renegotiate. We want to put it back in place. Now, the deal is not right now. What's happening is in 2015. I mean, Trump has added like 1,500 sanctions, but at the same time, Blinken, uh, Anthony Blinken, who's the Secretary of State, who's uh, vigorously pro-Israel, is long long-term." Uh, advocate and, and friend of of, uh, of Israel said, unless and until Iran comes back into compliance, they won't be getting that relief because Iran wants the sanctions to be removed. Now, no one's really defined what compliance is because... Well, the U.S. Um, is out of the deal. I mean... 
Yeah, I mean, the, there's no, well, first of all, right, the, the U.S. abrogated <laughs> the deal. So, so there is no deal to, you know, uh, abide by. But um, the United States keeps kind of moving these barriers, you know, moving the, the aim. But, but, but I mean, is it I mean, in, in Iran, is there a sense that something can be done or they think Biden's just posturing? And clearly the attack recently in Syria on, you know, Iranian-based uh, militias. Uh, they were Iraqi as well, that's the thing. I mean, Iraqi, yeah, right, right. Yeah, right. They, were, yeah they were Iraqi. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to watch. I mean, because the, they basically just cynically, they, they, they one, they lambasted um, Trump's policy. And I remember like Biden saying, yeah, we're far less safe as a result. And this has been counterproductive and it hasn't worked. And of course I'm going to return. And then they've just done this very cynical thing of just using the quote-unquote leverage um, of sanctions, basically economic warfare, because um, they think somehow that Iran is so desperate to come back to the table. Um, look, I do. I, look, I, think, I think the sanctions have really hurt. I mean, we've been saying, oh, we're just sort of outlining the humanitarian toll which they've had, and I don't think there's any doubt in that. And I do think, and I've actually, you know, seen just anecdotally, even let me just look at the sort of the stats and the figures. Anecdotally, I've just seen uh, relatives of mine with so their standard of living really just absolutely deteriorate, like you know, black and white. Like really, it's been um, absolutely brutal, um, and it's hurt kind of you know um, significant um, uh, constituents in Iran, which the which the US always tends to actually then puff up when it wants to do democracy promotion, sort of you know. Um, those sort of the middle classes, low middle classes, and whatnot. And they've been like extremely hard hit, let alone, I mean, um, those poorer sections of um, Iranian society. I mean, there's lots of stats actually about how sort of meat, the consumption of meat and chicken has absolutely plummeted as well. And um, so, I mean, yeah, it's had a huge, it has had a really, a very, very harsh toll. And it's actually consolidated, for instance, uh, economic interests of, of groups like the Revolutionary Guard. And the Revolutionary Guard isn't a singular thing. I mean, it's, it's, this is what often gets missed in a lot of the coverage. It's actually, you know, you have military wings, intelligence wings, you have like an economic wing, and they're not all the same. They're not like all um, actually coordinated in, in, in this way, which people tend to think they are. But yeah, I mean, often where you've had, for instance, private contractors in Iran who have gone bust, then yeah, the, the Revolutionary Guard sort of um, engineering wings and, and various other kind of sort of economic organizations which they have have sort of stepped into the, the, the fold there and have taken over. So, you know, it's actually been extremely detrimental to like quote of Iranian sort of civil society, democratic activists, all these sorts of things. I mean, it's really hurt that and it's actually entrenched the, um, the Revolutionary Guard uh, very, very clearly here. But um, yeah, what the American administration has done, yeah, they think that um, using this leverage is going to bring back Iran, bring, bring Iran back to the table. And the reality is, the US, I mean, did say they are willing to negotiate with Iran. But I mean, Iran has said from the beginning, it says, come back to the deal, um, remove sanctions um, because we didn't violate the deal. Um, and then we can, um, you know, we can talk and we're happy to um, basically up our compliance. What Iran has actually done, um, there is actually an article in the agreement which allows you to invoke, you can, which you can invoke to basically uh, decrease the, the level of commitment that you have if there's a violation of the deal. And given that the US has violated the deal like, on, on, a, on a huge scale, I mean, it literally it, it launched this you know, maximum pressure campaign against Iran. Yeah, Iran decreased its compliance. So it, enri it enriched to higher, uh, so higher enrichment levels. Previously, it was restricted to, I can't remember the exact figure, but three or 3% or so, something like this, very, very minimal 
you know, no chance of weaponizing. It basically shipped all of its enriched uranium to Russia um, abroad, so it didn't have any stockpiles whatsoever. And Iran said, okay, you're gonna basically increase, you're gonna basically impose economic warfare on us, and we're gonna decrease our commitment level. So this is why they've started enriching to higher levels. They've started actually um, using more advanced centrifuges. So, I mean, one thing that actually um, Iran did, I mean, the so-called Ferdo plant, which was in um, enrichment facility rather, which was actually deep in, in basically in a mountain um, as such, Iran basically poured concrete on the whole thing and just shut it down completely in, in response to, as a, for the JCPOA. And what you actually find in Iran now, I mean, amongst elites, obviously, yeah, there's, you know, there's different discourses at work, there's sort of elites, different discourses, there's lots of disagreements within the elite, there's, there is like a real variety of opinion, uh, and then you have sort of popular opinion, but what, one thing you do notice is that even people who previously did support the JCPOA um, are like, you know, or people on the, or more on the right of the spectrum in Iran, like we've been proven right. I mean, we've been vindicated um, completely. Um, the only thing the US understands is force, just like you know the US says the Iranians understand is force. Um, you, you many in the right, uh, many and many not just in the right, like many people who have said even former backers of the JCPO say, yeah, I mean, we committed to the deal, we abided by the deal, we did not violate it once. Um, uh, we stuck to the letter of it, and nevertheless, um, the U.S. abrogated it, and then uh, basically undertook a, a war, a, a sort of an economic war against us to implode the state. I mean, and um, started backing all sorts of dubious characters uh, and groups um, who sought to topple the Iranian government. So, I mean, as far as the right is concerned, they're they're vindicated. So, the, again, the incentive is, why should we negotiate? Um, with the US, um, especially when, for instance, the IMF is now predicting that the Iranian economy is going to have like three or so percent growth in the next year. Um, and then China again has ramped up um, its purchase of Iranian oil again. Um, because what you did have, you did have this massive, very steep decline in the purchase of um, Iranian oil. Um, but then, you know, that's been kind of then um, sort of, we've seen a kind of a steady increase now. Um, and obviously, given sort of the intensity now of the U.S. campaign against China, <laughs> what you can see sort of this long-term trend sort of Iran saying, okay, which has which has been going for some time. That Iran has sort of you know China's been one of Iran's main economic partners, and in a sense, the U.S. consolidated that rather than actually creating a split within the Iranian elite, because there was a significant um, you know section of the Iranian elite, so people like Rouhani, but also many reformists. He sort of said, no, we need to open relations and have really good relations with Europe. We need to open economic relations. We need to attract all this foreign investment um, and whatnot. In a sense, they've been um, undermined massively by this. Um, many of them have even come to the opinion that, you know, that the JCPOA um, was a mistake, um, as well as actually Rouhani's um, whole policy was a mistake because, I mean, Rouhani's also been heavily criticized for basically tying Iran's economic fortunes to the JCPOA basically to this projection that if we reach a conclusion on the JCPOA with the, with the Europeans and the United States, there's gonna be this massive influx of foreign investment and economic relations are gonna flourish. And basically he's been accused of being profoundly naive for basically crafting a policy which hinged so greatly basically on the US abiding by this deal. And obviously the Europeans also being able to even leverage the US. Cause like, as you were saying, Bob, I mean, the U.S. is like going off, going after American, like uh, European companies, and like threatening them, and threatening sort of American, um, sorry, European ministers of finance and whatnot, um, saying, you know, you need to basically get your house in order, and we're, and we're going to go off, the Treasury is going to go after you uh, if you deal with Iran. 
which, you know, and again, so, I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's hard to predict what will happen, especially in light of the upcoming elections. I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about that if you want to. Right, Rouhani is running again? Uh, no, Rouhani's uh, reached his, his second term's done. So he's, okay, okay. Um, and he's really, I mean, there was so much, actually, the thing is so ironic, he was so, so much optimism when he was elected in 2013. And um, yeah, some of it was perhaps naive and, um, and wasn't realistic on what he could possibly achieve. You know, um, he's also seen as, um, you know, uh, he has issues in lots of, in lots of different um, respects. But I mean, there was a huge amount of um, optimism and now he's really probably emerged as like the worst president. That, I mean, one of the worst presidents that Iran's ever had. I mean, and he's really, his, his, his approval ratings are very, very low. And then what we saw in the recent parliamentary elections last year was that just because of the economic situation, just general discontent with the political situation, turnout was at like record lows. And I mean, very much like in the US, when you have like very low turnout, it often maybe does benefit, but not necessarily, but it did benefit the more the right in Iran, basically. So now you have a very kind of conservative parliament, um, uh, what they call the principalist sort of factions um, who are um, very prominent in the Iranian, Iranian parliament um, at the moment. And it's looking, I mean, we don't know, there's also speculation as to who will run, but it looks like, yeah, um, probably maybe someone on the right will likely be elected and then whether they're going to have the incentive to you know rush to a deal with the US or maybe and, and maybe they will I mean we don't know actually what will happen because Iranian politics is a bit um is fickle in this regard like you could have someone in the you know who's happy to deal with, deal with the US and can actually deliver and won't actually have as much opposition maybe as a reformist administration so it, it, just because there's a, a more sort of a right wing shift in the presidency doesn't mean that there there won't be um, a deal or that it's going to be. Um, uh, but it, but I think just overall it's going to be harder to actually justify um, to the political elite to the political establishment simply because there's just going to be this dubiousness about can the U.S. will the U.S. actually abide by its um, commitments and given that Biden's going to be a one term president as well I mean they're not sure what's going to come in like you know four years I mean. Um, if it's going to be another Trumpian kind of um, figure. So I think there's going to be, there's a lot of circumspection in Iran, a lot of doubt. I mean, um, there's already been a shift to the right, as I said, in parliament, and we and we have to see what will happen in the uh, in the presidential elections. But of course, I mean, I think the Rouhani administration is desperate to, in this very short window, is desperate to reach a deal because its whole legacy is basically bound up with um, this, but the, the crucial issue is that obviously it's Rouhani doesn't isn't the ultimate decision maker. I mean, he he's important, of course, and he has an important role. But uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, who's obviously the supreme leader in Iran, has a has a huge say about whether this actually comes through and what are the conditions. And he's been giving mixed messages as well. So he's kind of been on the one hand saying we're happy to return to the deal if the U.S. returns. So if the U.S. basically returns to the deal, lifts economic lifts all sanctions, then we are happy to return. But barring that, then he might actually um, wait out, wait it out, especially if they see kind of like somewhat of an upswing in this in the fortunes of the Iranian um, economy. So yeah, it's difficult actually to to see what will actually happen. And given that, yeah, like you, you mentioned, Blinken, I mean, Blinken even um, I think just recently, I think it was in Congress, he was. Um, I mean, they're not even willing to um, allow Iran to um, to have access. To its um, to it basically the the money that is owed by various uh, other countries, like South Korea. So South Korea has a huge amount right. of 
uh, of funds, which it actually owes to Iran, which is Iran's own money in terms of foreign currency. And it's unwilling to release those, even through sort of the so-called humanitarian channel, the so-called Swiss channel, which was set up to actually facilitate humanitarian trade. But Blinken's actually opposed to that. So, I mean, um, it looks like, again, they want to sort of play hardball and they think that's actually going to bring Iran uh, back to the table and sort of reverse course. But I mean, that doesn't seem to be um, you know, a foregone conclusion by any means. Another question around the sanctions related to this is that, you know, we, we also saw like the, the sanctions also intensified the COVID, the impact of COVID in Iran. And I'm kind of curious how domestically, like if the right, uh, the conservatives are like weaponizing COVID somehow to like sway in the elections. Like, we know that the U.S. has done that, but I'm, I'm kind of curious how the uh-huh. pandemic, okay. how pandemic fits in here. I mean, it's it, it's actually a, it's a complicated um it's like Iran has developed a vaccine, and I think the predominant ones which are being used are the Russian and Chinese ones. Obviously, you know, there has been a long, there's, there's, a, there's a, many accounts of the ways in which, for instance, um, various sort of drugs, obviously Iran produces a lot of pharmaceuticals itself, but certain, but certain drugs it just can't, it just doesn't have access to the, to the necessary ingredients. Uh, and, and particularly, I think certain, around cancer, treatments for cancer, um, uh, kidney failure and things like this. There are certain drugs which you know they haven't been able to um, attain to actually get hold of. Um, so that's actually has played out very badly in Iran. But at the same time, I mean, this is question of the relation between sanctions and sort of the the economic situation in Iran itself. So, for instance, we know that sanctions create black markets basically, um, and they exacerbate that because. Obviously, it's those who have access to sort of very um, surreptitious channels, ports and whatnot, who can use different smuggling routes and, and they actually try to profiteer from these. And obviously, many of these, I mean, do have a, I'll have connections to elements within the Iranian state. And you've seen sort of a lot of backlash against internal corruption. And the judiciary sort of has tried to kind of counter this with a sort of anti-corruption campaign. And how successful that's been is highly kind of questionable. But I mean, there is this real relationship between sanctions uh, which have affected obviously medicine not simply because they're not because there's direct sanctions against medicine it's more often just simply because obtaining credit um, credit agreements and all these sorts of things uh, to be able to purchase um, sort of ingredients for pharmaceuticals has been thwarted so this actually has been far more kind of detrimental and actually various companies for instance pharmaceuticals companies have been very wary about dealing uh, with them because they're very worried they're getting sanctioned by the u.s treasury in essence having these you know to pay huge um, fines so this is often how uh, drugs in Iran have been, um, you know, has, has become like a real sort of a knotty issue because you've obviously had the sanctions and you've got black markets and this has been exploited by various parties within the country. Um, and also, I mean, at the same time, obviously there's this immense distrust uh, with respect to the West uh, amongst the uh, uh, political leadership in Iran. And this obviously led Ayatollah Khamenei to basically say that you know, we don't, you know, there's a ban on British and American vaccines. Which you know played out played out very badly. Um, you know there was a lot of backlash against this as well, and he was really criticised. But I mean, you know, there's also this question of like the Russian and Chinese because there's also an issue of public trust inside Iran as well. I mean, from what I see, the rollout of these drugs, has, the vaccines, has been very slow. I mean, it, it's not really happening at a rapid uh, pace or nearly as rapid a pace. Um, as it should. Iran has obviously been taking various measures and developing a vaccine of its own, which it has called Barakat. Um, but again, I mean, I think people are very much living with COVID and don't see um, any kind of major change in, on that front on the horizon. And, and, and the right has, yeah, the right is, because the right is seen as really, 
having a kind of a surreptitious role in the economy and um, and being not very trustworthy on that front. And then because obviously Ayatollah Khomeini took a quite um, strong stance on American and uh, UK vaccines at the public level, I think, you know, um, while the US is certainly blamed, there's, there's a lot of blame to go around, I mean, internally as well within Iran itself. So the political establishment sort of handling of the COVID crisis has been really, uh, has been criticized um, too. Um, wow. I, you know, I think we've gotten more in 45 minutes than, you know, in all the articles I've read in the past, you know, year and a half about this. Um, so, I mean, just kind of to speculate a bit going forward, uh, um, do you think Biden will kind of revert back to this, you know, idea that, you know, this is Obama's kind of gold standard and we need to somehow reenter it? Or do you expect to see this kind of continuing conflict, you know, as part of a larger regional issue with with Saudi, with with the UAE, with Israel, with Syria, and, yeah. uh, you know. I think it just really depends whether the, I mean, whether the US does want to sort of now broaden out the deal or change the deal. I mean, sometimes you do get hints of that, that there may be sort of, for instance, the question of ballistic missiles and things they want to right, right, right. which is just a non-starter. I mean, Iran's not- Right, 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 right. I mean, right. it's absurd. I mean, yeah. um, and I think even people who are very critical, for instance, of the, uh, of, um, the Iranian state often think this is absurd. I mean, and it's just never going to happen. It's just not realistic. So, I mean, I think now it's just a matter of, I think both are sort of playing hardball in a sense. I mean, Iran can't relent because it's sort of, it, it already seems weak by virtue of signing the JCPO, JCPOA and then the US reneging and then basically the uh, the maximum pressure campaign having such detrimental detrimental effects in inside the country. So Iran really can't, um, I, I think the, they're very um, reluctant to relent, especially because they didn't abrogate the deal. Um, but what I do think they are open to is some kind of, and I think other people have spoken about this, but it's some sort of coordinated uh, return um, uh, to their various obligations. Whether the, you know, the American administration really is committed to that um, and whether there will be some sort of back channel that will be opened um, and in, in which they might be able to choreograph that. I mean, I guess time will tell because I mean, I'm not entirely sure still how the Biden administration is seeing the Rouhani administration. Is it seeing as a lame duck, for instance? And it's no point. I mean, um, why should we use so much political yeah. capital now um, with respect to an administration um, that is not going to be around in, you know, in, 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 in three, four months, you know. So I think that might be their thinking, actually, because, I mean, and, and it is rational, I mean, if that's how, if that's how they're thinking, because they could think like, okay, if we um, relent from their perspective, obviously they are um, culpable, <laughs> um, but, you know, the US administration is culpable for um, previous one for reneging on the deal. They could say, okay, we, we basically expend all this political capital internally, because obviously, as you were sort of saying, Bob, there's loads of opposition to Iran, there's certain outspoken um, senators, I think Senator Menendez and others who are like, really like, pro-Israel, anti-Iran hawks. So they can say, why would we expend all this capital? And then we basically, for instance, let's just say a really uh, fiercely um, uh, conservative kind of very, very sort of anti-US, let's say, administration then gets elected in. That, that could see, they could see that as backfiring for them. Um, I think Iran, um, so they might be waiting. I, I really think they might, they might be. And I think Iran, um, I think the Rouhani administration is probably eager to do a deal because as I said, it's very bound up with their, like for their legacy, that, that legacy, that political legacy. I mean, that's really his o only uh, major achievement, uh, you could say, of yeah. like this two terms. Um, but then again, I mean, internally, you know, there are dynamics. So 
I think, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei is very aware that there is a lot of economic stress and strain in the economy. I'm sure he, he's very aware of that and he is concerned by that and the instability which that um, does create. But at the same time, he, he might not want to give Rouhani um, that credit, even though, you know, they have traditionally have a good relationship. Ayatollah Khamenei is like getting to an age where, you know, he could really pass away you know, at any time in the next couple of years. And then there's an internal battle within Iran over who could potentially succeed him. And sometimes Rouhani's name does get aired. So, and, 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 and it does appear that, you know, there are favored potentially candidates which Ayatollah Khamenei has in mind. So it, he, maybe he wouldn't want to give that political capital to the Rouhani sort of administration and kind of leave him with this really quite somber um, uh, and like, yeah, quite poor kind of legacy. Um, so again, we have to kind of, you know, it's, it's difficult to always speculate on these things. My hunch is that they might, um, they might wait it. It might, might not, not happen until yeah. a new administration and they might start, start a back channel earlier um, to kind of see how they want to coordinate. But these things take time. They just don't happen uh, overnight. So, uh, but who knows, might get surprised. I would, but I would generally be surprised if, if the US does and Iran both manage to sync up and reach a deal before June, I, I would be quite surprised if that happened. Yeah, I mean, same here. I mean, it is, you know, on a practical level, um, Biden is is overwhelmed right now with COVID and, uh, you know, kind of dom domestic issues. Um, I don't know if Scott has any more questions before we leave. I want you to uh, tell us a little bit about your book. Cambridge University Press, the finest academic press in the world. I have to, I have to note that. I'm a Cambridge author too, so that's okay. Okay, great. I'm just bragging so, right now. Yeah. So. Okay. No, it's it's obviously a very different, in a sense, topic in many ways. It kind of um, uh, it's it's sort of a study in the in the in sort of the transformations of um, I mean, both the sort of I mean, one one of the things which it really tries to answer is that obviously we have this uh, revolution, 1979, um, and this regime emerges, which is highly influenced by discourse of third worldism, um, the left, you know, sort of economic justice, empowering the, the oppressed the world over, um, obviously under the leadership of Ayatollah um, Khomeini. Um, but then by, for instance, 1997, we see this like reformist wave. So we see Mohammed, um, Mohammed Khatami uh, is elected in 1997. He's seen as sort of, um, you know, this, this, the leader of, sort of the reformists really. And so the, the dawn of sort of a new era in Iran. So really what the book tries to answer is, you know, what kind of um, transformations happened in the political elites and how they basically um, thought about politics, how they thought about um, revolution, how they thought about the state, how they thought about constitutionalism, how they thought about all these sorts of things. Like, how did we sort of get to the situation where you have like these hardened revolutions? Sometimes were like militants, you know, they were like guerrillas. They were, you know, uh, really sort of committed um, to kind of global revolution. Um, how within the space of, you know, um, 20 years, but really it starts earlier. I mean, it starts from sort of like the very late 80s and early 90s. How do they sort of emerge as kind of reformists within, within the political elite and kind of advocate for kind of a transformation of the Iranian state, and it kind of a lot of it looks about just sort of transformations in um, political thought, religious thought, uh, approaches to sort of um, Islam and, and the relationship between politics and Islam. So it's really kind of an intellectual history of kind of evolutions and transformations of political thought in Iran, really since probably the the seventies through to like the the, the mid two thousands. So yeah, uh, hopefully that's a kind of a, a kind of a, a really kind of no. And and if anyone is interested in Iran, I would suggest checking out Eskander. I've known for a few years now, and he's just a, a brilliant scholar and and a great guy. And uh, once uh, you know, if something big happens and 
there's either a, a, a treaty or, or a new violation or something, we'll have to have you back on at some point just to, to talk about, you know, what's going on. But we really, really uh, appreciate this, uh, you know, a ton. Um, and it's just the information you're not going to get in the, the Washington Post or the, uh, the New York Times, which I have to say have actually done a better job recently than I expected them to. I mean, they're actually kind of... Um, Today, there was a piece in the Washington Post, which actually talked about Korea and the, uh, uh, you know, just the Blinken and, 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 you know, kind of a lot of the ideas you brought up. So the, the media is doing a little bit better, but certainly yeah. not, not what. I, they, yeah, they it's said. still not there. Yeah. I mean, like, no, no, it's not there at all. But at <laughs> least, uh, you know, yeah. I can't think really of any state that has the negative implication in the U.S. that Iran does, you know, from from the hostage situation, just the kind of. The, the propaganda and it's these, these kind of ugliest stereotypes. And, yeah. you know, I mean, you have that with, with Cuba or something like that, but there's also like a significant group of Americans who, you know, the Vence Ramos Brigade, and there are people here who will defend Cuba or Venezuela or whatever, but Iran, not so much. So I can't think of yeah. really any state. And then you have, you know, on top of that, you have this kind of Israel calling Iran an existential threat. So, you know, it's really important. And, and especially in light of just the, the intense, um, humanitarian damage that the sanctions have done, which I think people yeah, forget. Yeah. I mean, sanctions, like, you know, they're supposed to over, generally they strengthen the regime and they really significantly harm people. I think and, the problem you know, is like uh, with the discourse around Iran is like, I mean, uh, a lot of people can't uh, seem to sort of, um, I mean, and this happens on the left as well. There's like so many divides on the left um, often about Iran, obviously, because it's, you know, it's um, Islamic Republic and, um, and it's seen obviously as, as retrogressive in, 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 in certain ways, obviously. I mean, obviously like mandatory hijab and these sorts of things. And I, I, I think that's completely legitimate. And the Iranian state needs to be kind of really criticized on that. But I mean, the, the, it is being criticized inside Iran. You know, there are lots of Iranians who are being, who are very critical of the Iranian state who are trying to actually enact, push through reforms and changes and sort of, and, and, and sort of real systemic kind of um, transformation. Um, so, I mean, that's happening, right? I mean, um, people who are outside, I mean, look, Iran is like under, is often under attack in terms of like economic warfare. It's encircled by US bases. I mean, it, the US is occupying countries around it. I mean, for me, for some, you know, the people on the left, it's really kind of a no brainer. It's like support Iranian self-determination. Iranians will sort out their country. They have for like, you know, so, you know, for hundreds of years, they've been, you know, literally, like I said, since the 19th century, they've been fighting uh, like imperialism, whether it's British imperialism, whether it was like Imperial Russia and, and, and their imperialism. I mean, the Russia, like Imperial Russia bombed Iran's like parliament in like 1908, you know, when we had, so when Iran had a constitutional revolution in 1906 to 1911, right? So Iranians have been, you know, having these kind of uh, uprisings and also fighting, I mean, d domestic kind of authoritarian leaders, whether it's the Qajar monarchy, like, uh, or then it's the Pahlavi monarchy. So, you know, there's like lots of, you know, Iranians have been fighting that and will continue to do so. It doesn't really need like, um, you know, uh, Western observers uh, to tell Iran Iranians like, you know, how to actually fight for their kind of, you know, liberation or whatever, or like for a better, fairer, more democratic system, they're doing that. Um, I think it's really incumbent on people outside to say, okay, why is our government <laughs> imposing these brutal sanctions which yeah you know, we know they don't work we know the whole point is that you just completely devastate and uh uh you know create sort of mass deprivation um and it never actually ends up really weakening um the regime who's supposedly meant to be the object of our wrath it actually only ends up actually increasing their power yeah. and consolidating their power so i mean but for you outside it's like okay focus on what your your government policy 
not saying, you know, um, the US needs to set up more human rights NGOs. I mean, they're, they're good, right? But I mean, I don't think that's really the necessarily the solution. Um, the solution is to stop your government interfering in the region. I mean, that's like a main thing. And then Iranians and Iraqis, um, you know, will, sort, will, will, will struggle and, you know, it's a difficult process, but they will, um, they'll get there, you know? Um, and um, and so I think so that just needs to be the position, respect their own self-determination, stop foreign interference, stop kind of economic warfare, stop kind of this like foreign aggression. I mean. It's for me. It's a no-brainer, to be honest. Um, and as an Iranian, I think it's a no-brainer. It, it's actually been a big theme of our of our podcast is that today in in the in the left, whatever the left is in the U.S., there's very much uh, a void of internationalism, right? And so, like the politicians who we see as like as the best of the left in Congress, like Bernie Sanders, AOC, they're they're still you know they're hawks internationally yeah. in, in many ways, and. Yeah. One of the things that we've wanted to do with this podcast with our small but mighty and growing audiences to you know educate them on like issues such as this so it's a very uh, yeah. important no, thing brilliant. to be, to no, be, I mean, to be so pushing needed. no it's so needed because like you don't you can have solidarity with you know different peoples and obviously you know the the, the work the Iranian working class is suffering i mean uh, lots of democratic sort of democracy activists are having a uh, you have a very hard time environmental activists i mean this is definitely the case i mean and i think we can definitely show solidarity with um with these individuals without actually also caricaturing the Iranian state in such a, like a simplistic way, kind of, you know, which always have, which does happen. And it, there is often this sort of um, caricatures. We can do that at the same time. We can kind of acknowledge, you know, that there are these internal struggles within Iran to try and democratize or improve, you know, improve the, the standing you know, more in, in the name of egalitarianism and it's also more economic sort of fairness and social justice. At the same time, you know, acknowledge that, you know, the US is like, and, and I think one of the things that came through in our discussion is like the, you know, the economic warfare and kind of the authoritarian issues in Iran are linked. I mean, they are linked. And they have, I mean, that's throughout the 20th century as well. You just have to remember when the US was backing Mohammed as a Pahlavi to the hilt. I mean, again, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, they are linked in important ways. I think we need to have the kind of that kind of nuanced kind of look, which I, which I know you guys definitely have and, uh, and are sympathetic to, and I really applaud like what you're obviously trying to do with the, with the podcast, because that is needed, because unfortunately, so much of the way these situations are understood is like through these, um, yeah, through so often neoliberal NGOs who often decontextualize the deeper kind of political struggles that are at work or the, or the ways in which the American government is itself implicated in, in, in these dynamics, which it absolutely is. Um, yeah, so yeah, but thanks so much um, for what you guys are doing. And thank you for having me on. It's been just great oh, no, having a chat a with you guys. I'm glad you brought that up because that's really kind of, I think, shredding certain elements of the left. You know, you talk about Syria and, you know, just, you know, the idea of saying, you know, the United States has to stay out of Syria isn't enough. So you have people saying you have to condemn Assad and you have other people saying, no, Assad is a, you know, a, libera a liberator. And and so you get into these really ugly arguments where people start throwing all kinds of vitriol yeah, at it's each very other. Toxic. Yeah. Rather than just saying, yes, get the hell out of, uh, you know, Iran, you know, or yeah. uh, Syria or yeah. wherever. So. Yeah, anyway, yeah. thank you so much, Eskander. It's you. great talking to you again. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll see you again before too long if uh, if travel yeah. restrictions lift and, uh, you know. Yeah, anytime. Yeah, you're more than welcome, London, anytime. It'd be great to see oh, you. Oh, uh, believe me, that doesn't take much to, to, you know, you'll regret inviting me. I might not. <laughs> and uh, if I'm back in Italy, you could come visit there. So. No, that'd be great. That'd be yeah. great. No, great, so, great seeing you, Bob. We'd love to thank you so you, much. Scott, as well. Yeah, it's been great talking. Uh, folks, you've been listening to... Eskender Sadigi in London today, uh, talking about the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. Please check us out on Instagram, Facebook, 
and Twitter. You can also uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. And then if you want to make a one-time donation, go to our website, greenandredpodcast.org and hit support. Or if you want to become a patron and support us on a regular basis, uh, go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And it has been great talking and we'll catch you soon. Thank you.